you are listening to Caught at an Intersection, the podcast. This podcast is a four-episode series this Pride Month dedicated to fostering conversations about intersectionality, especially for those who fall at the intersection of being both Black and queer. I am your host, Jeremiah Baldwin. I hope you all enjoy the show. Welcome to this Pride Month last episode of Caught at an Intersection, the podcast. I am your host, Jeremiah Baldwin, and I am very excited for this week's guest on Caught at an Intersection, the podcast, and his name is Alejandro, and I'm going to go ahead and let him introduce himself, and then we'll jump into our conversation. Hi, everyone. My name is Alejandro. I am a community uh, organizer and a writer from the Bronx. I'm very excited for this conversation. And I think that'll be very insightful because we're going to be talking about James Baldwin, who is an amazing, or who was an amazing Black literary um, and had some amazing contributions to the literary community. He also identified as Black and queer. And I think that this conversation will be fruitful and we will learn a lot um, from each other. And we hope that you all will learn a lot through listening. But to go ahead and get started with our conversation, we are going to go ahead and buckle our seatbelts up and hop into our car and get started with our drive. So as we're driving, as always, I want you all to take in the kind of the environment and reflect on just the external forces that can be impacting your particular life, the lives of others, and using that information to kind of think about through our car ride and once this episode is over. So as we are driving, we are pulling up to a stop sign. And as we always do at stop signs on this podcast, I want to ask some questions to Alejandro and myself that you all ask us in my Instagram story. So to go ahead and get started with our questions, I first have one from Kanika who asked, why should police stay away from pride? And I'm gonna go ahead and let Alejandro offer his thoughts and then I will offer my reactions as well. Yeah, this is such a hot topic right now. Um, It's a, I think it's a very important and radical step forward, I think for uh, just any sort of LGBTQ um, uh, movement or space to take uh, necessary steps against institutions that uh, predominantly criminalize all of us, right? So NYPD, for example, has historically um, contributed to violence towards LGBTQ folks, towards sex workers, towards Black folks, towards Brown folks. And so uh, I think the Pride Parade this year is saying, hey, we actually you know, don't want any um, working police officers in uniform marching uh, I think is a, is a great step forward. And I think it's also um, a way of standing in solidarity with uh, mm-hmm. the, the racial justice movement that we were seeing, sort of the uprising that yeah. we were seeing last summer and into this year. I think so as well. And I think that on the surface, people might think that, oh, why do people not want police presence at Pride? But whenever you think about it a little bit more critically and understand 
kind of the history of the police in relation to, in specific, just the New York queer community, and then also kind of the queer community throughout the entire United States. I think that it's very telling and it's a very, very important issue because when you understand kind of those correlations, it, it kind of makes sense as to why there's people who don't want police at Pride. So I think, like you said, it's a very radical step forward and step in the right direction. And if someone who is a police officer wants to attend Pride, they can attend Pride. Uh, they just don't necessarily have to show up in uniform for that particular event. So I think it's very uh, important what you said. And I think also, again, understanding critically the reasons why people don't want pe police at Pride, uh, I think will definitely help people understand kind of the, the conceptual understanding of that reasoning. I went to the Brooklyn Liberation March, which is a space um, organized and created and spearheaded by Black trans women. Um, and there they made the very important distinction of, of, of reminding folks that Stonewall was not a, a march, it was a protest. And Pride is, it's not a march, it's a protest. And so when we're thinking about who we're protesting against mm -hmm. and the institutions that we are combating, uh, the NYPD is actually one of those institutions that we are combating when we show up for queer and trans folks. That's a really great point. I, I highly agree with that. And it's actually correct. That's how pride originated. And obviously, I guess we can or can't blame people that they forgot because the way that history has been kind of co-opted, it kind of leaves that message out. But one shirt that I have that I really enjoy wearing is that the first pride was a protest and that's what it says and that's the reality that it wasn't kind of this mainstream pride that we think of in our narrative today it originated with black and brown trans women who were at the front lines making sure that all people were being seen equally and all of their issues were being brought to discussion and who were they protesting against mainly nypd at the time who were raiding their bars and their nightclub. So I think that that oftentimes get lo gets lost in the, in the narratives that are told today. And people see these news articles about people not wanting police at Pride. And they often forget about even the contemporary um, discourse between police and police brutality and things like that. So again, I think it's very important for us, as well as the audience, to just remember that you have to think about these things critically and understand that there's a cause and effect for every situation as there is with uh, this case as well. Um, but I wanna go ahead and move on to our next question. And it is about harm reduction in terms of voting practices. So Kanika, who asked the previous question also asked, does harm reduction really exist when voting with the LGBTQ community in mind? So I think that within the system that we live in here in the United States, uh, voting is important. Also understanding the contribution that Black individuals have had to experience through the voting process, but then also understanding that voting isn't the only way to ensure that one's voice can be heard or that issues can be rectified. Because if we look over the summer, with the Black Lives Matter protests, in my opinion, the protests accomplished more than just the election of Joe Biden did. And I think that both are valuable ways to exercise your voice and also amplify your opinions and your perspectives, but also understand that not everyone sees 
one way. So if someone doesn't necessarily want to participate in the electoral system or the US political system, that's just as okay as someone who wants to go more towards uh, a more grassroots-based organizing effort. So I think that thinking about that in that kind of uh, that kind of lens and that kind of open perspective really allows for people to understand because if we think about some other Black authors and literaries aside from James Baldwin, we have Audre Lorde who famously said the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. So I think that, again, understanding that participating in the electoral system, the U.S. political system is very impactful to some extent, but then also understanding that just if someone doesn't want to do that as well, um, should also be okay. So I think that in terms of harm reduction, it shouldn't be something that's forced onto someone, but in terms of education and letting people know about their rights and their liberty that they have within the electoral system is definitely beneficial, but forcing someone to vote because you think that's the only way that change is going to be brought about is definitely incorrect and definitely false because that's not the only way. And we saw that over the summer with all the different legislation that came about because people took to the streets and protested. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you covered a lot of what I wanted to share. I understand that there is a deep disillusionment um, with our political system. Um, we have every right, especially as Black queer folks, to be completely disillusioned uh, in our political systems and a lot of our systems. Uh, because most of them have not only not made, not been made for us, but also have been made um, to exclude us and to reduce our lives and our experiences. So I understand why people are disillusioned. Um, and at the same, same time, you know, insofar as the laws and, and politics govern a lot of the way that we live our lives, a lot of our rights, um, we still have to show up and vote when we can with you know, like, like you said, with the understanding that that is not the only venue in which we can enact change or participate in improvement, improving the, the, the possibilities in the lives of queer Black folks. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's super contentious. I think sort of people have to make their own personal choices, um, mm -hmm. but also think about their community and think about who they're, who they're engaging, engaging with and think about also the kinds of laws that are currently sort of and bills that are currently being passed against trans folks, uh, specifically against uh, and, and criminalizing trans young people. Um, and so, you know, I said my favorite saying is that we can do both. Uh, we can do all of the things we can vote and we can show up to the march and we can create art and we can et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think that's a really great point. And one thing that I learned as an African African diaspora studies major is that Black diasporic communities aren't a monolith. Everyone isn't the same. Some people think that we should go one particular route, while other people think that another route is more favorable. And I think that, like you said, it's a personal thing that you can find a community that will be what's best for you within the Black diaspora communities and whatever you want to do with that particular or with your particular voice and in terms of your particular activism is completely fine. And again, like I said earlier, the Black diaspora communities are not a monolith. So everyone has different ideas, has different means of going about enacting change. And I think that each one is valuable and should be heard and valued uh, simultaneously. And one shouldn't be kind of favored over another. Um, 
in terms of a broader societal lens. But I wanna ask our last question. And this question is also from Kanika, who is one of our uh, seasoned guests here on Caught at Intersection, the podcast, and had a lot of questions to offer. Her question is, do you think that the grouping of LGBTQIA plus people makes sense? And does it hinder or benefit activism? Yeah, that's a dense question. Um, I don't think that there's sort of- I think so as well. Any correct answer. I will say um, that the term community has become very popular in how we imagine groups of people that share an identity. And I think that we can do a better job in our contemporary moment of really thinking about what a quote unquote community is and what we mean when we say that, right? When we, what do we mean when we say the quote unquote black community? What do we mean mm -hmm. when we say the quote unquote queer community? But who's left out of that community or who's, who isn't? Right, there's a lot of nuance that is lost when we, when we mm -hmm. group so many different people with a lot of different experiences, with a lot of different economic backgrounds, geographical backgrounds, experiences into one group. Um, we've seen, for example, the ways in which grouping everyone, all queer trans people under the LGBTQIA spectrum has given way to the centering of specifically gay cis men, gay cis white men, um, and has centered, centered them uh, in a conversation and in a movement and in communities that they have not been the creators of, right? Um, and so I do think that when we talk about community, whether it's LGBTQIA community, uh, et cetera, um, that we need to bring a lot more nuance into how we use that word and that we actually need to start using the word communities, actually. Uh, so when we, we talk about queer communities, we can say with differentiation and with specificity who we're talking about. Are you talking about uh, queer community in Washington Heights? Are you talking about a queer community in, in Georgia? Are you talking about a, you know, a lesbian community in San Francisco? Like, what do, what do we talk about? That, there's also differences in that. For so sure. that's like, yeah, good point. Sure. And I think like you said, the importance of our, you didn't mention this verbatim, but something that I kind of, um, that I kind of drew out from your, or from your words is that the importance of words and how, we should be specific in kind of what we're saying and that helps our activism because then we're able to narrow down our focus and be able to target specific communities and I think that like you said like the word community itself is a loaded term and you can say LGBTQ community but then within that group there's differences and then within a group that you kind of extract from the LGBTQ community there's going to be more community within there and I think that one should think critically about that and that's something that I always like to encourage you all um, my audience to do is to think critically about these different issues and these different things because we want to be specific and direct in our activism because something can be lost along the way and then we end up not being able to achieve our particular our particular goal it's important to understand that not everyone's experience is the same. And I know that that sounds as though something that everyone knows, but I think that everyone knows that, but they don't really understand that because especially within the LGBTQIA plus community, I feel as though when someone states that they are a black queer person and that their experience is different than someone who is a white queer person, 
some people tend to get a little bit bothered by that and feel as though there's being a game of oppression Olympics. But in reality, those experiences are different. And I think that, like you said, Alejandro, about differentiating between the word community and communities really allows for us to be able to pinpoint the issues that we want to address and allow for more change to kind of be brought about because we're being more direct in terms of who uh, we want to help and uplifting the community that will ultimately uplift others. But as I say that, I want us to go ahead and move on um, because we have been at this time for a while and I'm sure there's some cars behind us that are honking and ready for us to go. We don't want to get a ticket um, for staying at the stop sign too long. Yeah, but it's a residential area, so it shouldn't be too much of a problem. Um, but as we're, as we're driving, again, I want you all to take in kind of what we talked about throughout that conversation. And if I can leave you all with one thing is to always think critical about different experiences. But as we're driving, again, take in the environment, think critically about what's going on and keep taking in the environment. And as we are driving, we pull up to an intersection. And this intersection is symbolic of a lot of things, but it's the intersection that a lot of Black queer individuals fall at. Again, like I have said in previous episodes, this intersection is something that is one that cannot be undone. This is an intersection that a lot of people experience, people like James Baldwin, people like Marsha P. Johnson, India Moore that I've talked about in my previous episodes, and I think that at this intersection, I want you all to reflect on those people, the people in your lives and the people that you might not even experience because there's people all across, uh, all across the world that are living these experiences and having to deal with these intersections on a day-to-day -day basis. But at this intersection, I want us to think a little bit about critical race theory. Critical race theory as of now being attacked in over 15 states within the United States. And as you all can probably assume, they are states that are controlled by the Republican Party in terms of their state legislature. And even in my home state of Texas. So I think this is a very timely topic. And I wanna talk about how critical race theories or how the attack on critical race theory is impacting black literature and black authors, essays and poets and literaries as a whole especially one such as James Baldwin, whose work aligns a lot with kind of the information that is presented in critical race theory. So my question to my guest is how do you think the impact of the attacks on critical race theory will hinder or bring down the work of Black literary such as James Baldwin? I'll speak from my personal experience, you know, critical race theory, I started coming across a lot of these texts when I was in college, uh, reading uh, folks too. like, like Patricia Hill Collins, who wrote Black Feminist Thought. Um, and in a lot of ways, not only did these texts save my life in a lot of ways, but also they opened up my mind um, and gave me the language with which to create when I, when I go and, and write a short story or I write a poem. Um, so I think we need these texts. We need these texts to to Definitely. understand critically the experiences of, of, of Black folks in the diaspora. Um, and also to think outside of the binaries and the institutions and the structures that we've been taught. 
for me, critical race theory was not only about learning about sort of the injustices and systemic oppression and all of these things, but critical race theory was a, and continues to be a lesson and a, and a paradigm that teaches me how to think, how to think bigger, how to think more creatively, how to think in ways that are challenging um, and also in ways that are uh, synthesizing and in ways that are creative. And when I say that, I, I mean to say that a lot of our culture right now is very focused on deconstruction, on taking an argument or an idea or a piece of art and sort of breaking that up and, and sort of pointing out all the ways that it's wrong or it's problematic or et cetera, et cetera. And I think what cr critical race theory and I think what James Baldwin gives us is uh, words and language that push us to imagine the kind of world we want to live in that push us to imagine if it doesn't look like the systems that we live in now or the lives that we live now or the, the experiences that we have now, then what does it look like? I think you brought up a lot of great points. One thing that really stuck out to me that you said is about just the imagination that critical race theory, in specific James Baldwin offers to the readers. And the imagination aspect of critical race theory as a whole is something that I really favor and I think is one of the main reasons that I thoroughly enjoy critical race theory and the courses that talk about critical race theory and ethnic studies so much is because it challenges you to envision a world that you want to live in. And I think that kind of falls along the lines of Afrofuturism and things along those lines where you kind of envision that society, envision that world that is just and equitable for all people. And quite frankly, a lot of people who don't like critical race theory haven't even taken a critical race theory course or even read any of the literature about it, but they hear the word race in their, and they think, oh, this is race. I don't want to talk about it. It makes me uncomfortable. Well, the reality is that Black queer people have always had to be uncomfortable in particular spaces, but it's easy to overlook those experiences because it's not something that affects you. And critical race theory, unlike the U.S. history courses that are taught across the United States for the most part do not encompass those experiences. In fact, they seek to exclude those experiences, which is why critical race theory is so very important because it seeks to include people into narratives and in fact teach an education that allows us to create a society that is anti-racist. As I say that, let's go ahead and continue to move on to our next conversation. Um, which will feature a conversation at the yellow light. At the yellow light, I want us to think about the information that has been presented throughout this podcast, through our conversation, and also bring in a conversation about the self-education of Black literary works and be able to include a conversation about how we can create conversations that foster these narratives. So my question to Alejandro is how can we challenge the status quo in education and allow for school districts to include more conversations about Black writers in their lives? Because most often Black writers are not able to tell stories and present information about their own experience. Unfortunately, the practice is non-Black individuals, primarily white individuals, telling the stories about racism and kind of shaping that conversation instead of allowing people who have actually experienced racism, homophobia, 
queer phobia, trans phobia to tell those stories. So I think that's my question is how can we change that? So to answer your question, I mean, I feel like we just need to keep fighting and need to keep uplifting the works, the literary works of, of Black folks um, in spite of the institutional and systemic forces against us. I will say that these, you know, a lot of these things feel fresh and they feel new, uh, but they actually aren't. Uh, for as long as, as Black folks have been creating amazing work, um, there have also been huge institutional barriers that have tried to constrict the, the creative liberty of, of Black thinkers and writers. And so um, as simple as it might sound, we have to continue fighting, we have to continue uplifting uh, folks. And I think we also have to do so in a way that is, uh, that is sustainable. And I say that to say that I think that our instinct Definitely. is to sort of uplift one or two people and sort of bring those people up and make them as examples of this is what great work looks like. Um, but I think we need to even out the playing field a little bit by showing the diversity of Black thought and creativity. Um, I'm thinking specifically within Black queer uh, thought, right? We often herald very specific writers within the tradition, namely James Baldwin and Audre Lorde, and we have uplifted these folks, right? Which is great and we should be doing that. But that's also at the cost of a lot of writers that have been marginalized and erased and are not getting the attention and the resources um, and the, the accolades they should be getting for the work that they've done because I agree. white culture specifically keeps focusing on one or two writers. You know, they're like, these are the writers, these are the writers. Meanwhile, there's a whole field of folks that are creating really amazing and radical work. I agree with that point. And that makes me think of the talented tense, uh, thinking of the term that was coined by W.E.B. Du Bois uh, in one of his works and how that kind of philosophy um, centered around kind of a Eurocentric narrative that we need to select a few group of people to kind of be the representation of what we want our community to rise to. And I think that there is validity in applauding the work that Audre Lorde has done and the work of James Baldwin because they've definitely offered a lot and contributed a lot to the Black queer experience. But then also remembering that there are so many other talented and creative and just overall inspiring individuals that don't necessarily have the same platform as individuals like Audre Lorde or individuals like James Baldwin, but have still done a great amount of work and are very impactful within their communities. So I think that that's a really great point and something that is very noteworthy. Um, but one of the reasons why I wanted to ask you that particular question is because I was thinking about my own experience within the education system, as I was mentioning earlier, about how we are able to tell these stories about racism and the Black experience, not necessarily the queer experience. I feel like we don't necessarily talk about that at all in the education system, but more specifically, racism, those stories are not often told by people who are of the identity that is being harmed and hindered and with, withheld from other things within society. Those stories are often told by individuals who are non-Black, oftentimes uh, by predominantly white authors. And you think about books like to Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee that 
is a story about racism, but it's told from a white perspective. And it's often used to kind of be this example of literature or this example of storytelling. But in reality, it's a story about white saviorism and how there has to be a white individual involved in a story to be able to assist a black person, even though it was the white person who put them in that situation to begin with. So I think that that's very interesting in terms of literary communities as a whole, especially here within the United States, about how the individuals are placed, the black individuals are placed in this subservient position, and then they are forced to then be helped by the person who put them in the system in the first place, and they are not allowed to tell their own stories. So I think that that's right. very interesting and very telling of the United States. Yeah, and I also even push that push that further and say that often, you know, even when black writers and creator creators and thinkers are sort of are centered and are giving the things that they deserve. Um, I think in this contemporary moment and for historically for a long time, it's often the people that are writing about oppression in ways that uh, feels good to the people in power, right? So you have, for example, That's folks like Zora Neale Hurston writing in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Um, and she was very adamant about not just writing about what she called the quote unquote race issue. She wanted to write about love. She wanted to write plays about that were just centering black joy. Um, and she was not getting the resources that folks like Langston Hughes and other black writers, predominantly black men, were getting at that time. That was happening, you know, a hundred years ago. And I think the issue still that issue still persists today, that a lot of the black writers that get resources and attention and and the awards and stuff like that to get the Oscars, to get all of these things, are people who are writing about anti-black violence and, and slavery and all of these things. And while those narratives are still important. And there's a thousand more things that we can say about them, about unpacking trauma. There's also something to be said about allowing us also celebrate the multiplicity of what it means to be a Black person, a queer person uh, here and across the diaspora. That we should be allowed to write about oppression, but we should also be allowed to write about joy and, and given the space to write about love and romance and friendship and, and community and what, however our experiences in our art might manifest. And we should still get the same resources and accolades and awards and attention for that work. I think that's an excellent point. And it's something that is kind of masked under all of these other conversations and it doesn't necessarily come to the forefront a lot. But Dora Nilherson is a writer that I also really like. And I actually uh, read or recited one of her pieces in my reading club that I did over the summer. And it was about, or it was titled, if I'm not mistaken, what it feels like to be colored me. And I really enjoyed that piece because she talked about what you just mentioned about how she doesn't necessarily want to be put in this box about writing about race, but it's oftentimes the box that people are put in by society or whatever community or community they are in, whether it be I guess the media community or the literary community, and they're kind of put in this box to tell these stories. And when they do want to tell those stories that are about love or about romance or about heartbreak and all those different things, it's often considered 
a racial, racially motivated story or a race-centered theme. And I think that, like you said, the ones that do talk about kind of the anti-Black trauma that is imposed on Black diaspora communities, those are the ones that tend to gain national media attention, like 12 Years a Slave or some of the other ones that do not necessarily depict the joy and the versatility of Black individuals. And more in specifically Black queer individuals, because there's not necessarily a lot of media that is present in terms of films or television shows and things like that, that again, feature that versatility of Black diasporic, even queer community. So I think that that's something that has a lot of validity to it and something that definitely needs to be addressed more within society as a whole. But we have been at this yellow light for a while and it just turned green, so we have to move forward and keep our conversation going for our audience. So at this green light, as we are driving along and embarking onto new journeys and experiences, I want you all to take with you all everything that we discussed. But if I could personally leave you all with one thing from this entire podcast series that I have done is to be able to think critically about different situations, whether or however you want to take that, I think is valid. But I encourage you all to interpret critical thinking in terms of these conversations about race relations, about queer relations, and think about how those two intersecting affect Black queer individuals who are not ever able to separate those two things together or separate those two things apart. One last thing that I want us to discuss is about ways to decolonize bookshelves. And on that point, I want to ask Alejandro if, if he has any tips, recommendations for books that people can read, or just a way for us to be able to expose ourselves to diverse media and literature forms. Yeah, so I have some specific writers that I can recommend, but I think first, um, just want to piggyback off of what I was saying earlier, which is, uh, again, the importance of making sure that we are opening the field of what we consider Black queer thought and literature. Um, and so just at, in the same breath that we're celebrating folks like James Baldwin and Audre Lorde, I hope that we will also create space for folks that were creating at that time that don't get as much attention, as well as folks that are creating and writing right now. Um, and so I think in, in part that's up to us um, to, to create uh, and, and amplify and, and uplift the lineage of Black queer literary thought that has been created. Um, and so I want to recommend folks like June Jordan. June Jordan was an amazing queer uh, Black feminist who wrote poems and essays. And her essays were incredibly political and incredibly radical. And the purpose of them was to call people into action. And then she had these amazing, deep and, and heartfelt love poems that were incredibly you know, queer in sentiment. Um, and, I think June Jordan definitely is one of those folks that gives us the blueprints for, like I was saying earlier, for imagining what kind of world we want to live in and demanding that every time that we come to the table to critique something, that we also come to the table with the solutions and with the imaginary power and, and action to move forward. You know, again, if the world doesn't look like what it looks like right now, then what does it look like? That was something that June Jordan demanded of us in all of her work. And then I'll also say, just to bring up one of my other favorite writers is Randall Keenan, who just passed away recently. Um, he's an amaz amazing short story writer and novelist. 
um, who, you know, he wrote this novel called A, Visita a Visitation of Spirits, and it's a novel about the sort of uh, destruction of a queer Black boy in North Carolina. And often I like to stay away from narratives that are just depicting uh, queer trauma or Black trauma for the sake of depicting trauma, well. because that's exhausting, right? But I do think that there is a difference between pain that reduces us and turns us into stereotypes and pain that, that opens up the possibilities of what it means to be Black and queer. And I think that's what Randall Keaton does in his work. He opens up the possibilities of, of a Black queer universe to show the multiplicity and the nuance of who we, who we are, who we can be um, inside of oppression and beyond it. I think that that is a really great point. And like you said, I think that the imagination is a really great thing that opens up individuals to different possibilities and being able to imagine that world that you live in is something that really unpacks or unravels a lot of different possibilities, opportunities, and just a different way for people to kind of envision the world that they live in. That is how I want you all to leave this podcast is thinking about things a little bit more critically. And once you think about them more critically, envisioning that world where people who are Black and queer don't necessarily have to struggle as much as others as they have done historically and being able to envision a community where people are living their most authentic lives. That is it for this week's episode of Caught at an Intersection, the podcast. Thank you all for tuning in to my four episode podcast series this June. This podcast summer project means a lot to me and I hope it broadens your understanding of the topic of intersectionality, specifically in relation to Black LGBTQ communities. Be sure to follow me on either Spotify, Anchor, or whatever podcast app you are listening from. I am your host, Jeremiah Baldwin. My Instagram is at jeremiah.baldwin. Stay tuned for upcoming projects. <laughs>